So, like, first of all, like, can you introduce yourself for the audience? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Dan. Uh, I I work as a physiotherapist in Sydney, uh, in Australia. I've been in Sydney for about eight years now. Uh, some areas of interest. I, I work with an NBL one team here uh, in Sydney, which is the um, the basketball league here uh, in Australia. Uh, outside of that, I was a CrossFit coach for about 10 years, uh, did CrossFit for about 10 years as well. Uh, and prior to that played, um, played basketball and volleyball growing up. So I uh, grew up in Hong Kong. Uh, I spent about, spent about 13 years there and then went to school in the States. I uh, was there for four years uh, at a university called Calvin University. Uh, my first degree was actually in advertising and marketing. So completely different from uh, completely different from what I'm doing now. Worked in the advertising industry for about a year in Seoul, South Korea, and after that, that's when I started getting into the uh, to the I guess you could say the sporting scene. Uh, and I haven't turned back since. I did my master's degree here at the University of Sydney uh, in physiotherapy, and I've been working at a private practice coming up on three years now. So that's uh, that's a little bit about me. Oh, so I. I I've noticed that some of your posts is about like the French ball system. So when and how do you like start to get interested in this approach? Yeah, great question. So I I work at a private practice in, in Sydney called Proform Physiotherapy, and since I've been there, again, that's coming up on three years now. Uh, they it's it's a system that they've used, um, and it's something that I. I've kind of grown into while working there as well. And um, the Franz Bosch system, I know I know we're breaking down a little bit um, of, of what it is today, but it's it's complex. It's it's a completely different language in itself. And uh, even if you even if you get the book uh, one day, I, I think it's a bit it's a bit like the Bible. You you read it um, and then you you see something new every time uh, every time you read it. So it's. Uh, I've I've been I've been looking at it for about the past two two coming up on three years, uh, and it's just something that we use with a lot of our um, athletes, especially. Uh, we we do use it with some of our general population as well, but I think we see better transferability into sport when we use it with people at um yeah at kind of like this higher um yeah like higher athlete level. Well, so why do you think that it probably works? Better than traditional approach. Hmm. Uh, well, so many reasons. Uh, I I think one is is the variability of it. I I must admit that before before coming into a physiotherapist, I was very much so of the uh, like your classical strength and conditioning. Um, before I even got into the CrossFit scene, um, lots of plyometrics, lots of strength work. Um, lots of change of direction things as well, but uh, I think what what's different about Franz um, and, and the principle's been around for quite a while, but I think Franz Bosch kind of packaged it um, into this system really well, and it's uh, it's this whole idea of training with perturbations, training with instability um, to to almost elicit this reflexive pattern uh, in the in the human body. Right. So I, I think lots of times with your traditional approach of strength and conditioning, it, it's for the most part, quite, quite 
forward, backwards, left to right, not even a whole lot to left to right, but it's very like everything's happening in the sagittal plane, right? Um, with, with these hip locks, with co-contractions, with perturbations, I think there's a better, in my opinion, I think there's a better carryover into sport because sport is not one dimensional. Um, hardly ever does it happen in a pure sagittal plane. Yes, there's an element of it, um, but there's so much rotation. There's so many little things going on. And um, like the, this is the, the Bernstein principle as well, right? Um, let, let's say you're, we're imagining a shot. Um, no one shot is going to look the same. And I think if you're training um, over repetition versus through variability, I, I think we can both appreciate the fact that we, um, yeah, no one shot's gonna look the same. So why should our training look the same every single time? Like how is a back squat, a pure back squat going to carry over into something like a vertical jump, right? There's so many little different factors going on. I think that's where Bosch's systems um, they, they work really well and they probably touch on things that traditional approaches don't. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, of course, of course. I love yeah. that. So yeah. you mentioned like hip lock, co-contraction, like muscle mm. slack or protubation. So like mm. for those like who are not familiar with like the French ball system, can you like talk a little bit about like what is the concept of hip lock and how to like mm. implement into like how to like implement it into like uh your like rehab or prehab or the concept to con uh, build um, bring this into like training yeah yeah good question so well, okay i'm gonna try simplifying this as much as possible um so so the hip lock um the hip lock, it's, it's a stable position of, of the pelvis, right? Um, so if you imagine, uh, let's say we're doing a hip lock um, with your right knee coming up towards your chest, um, you have what's called triple extension. Um, you see it a lot in Olympic weightlifting as well. Um, so that's plantar flexion, of, uh, plantar flexion of the foot, that's extension of the knee and extension of the hip, and that's a triple extension. And so what the, the hip lock is really applicable uh, to running, jumping, and most track and field sports, right? And it's it's this position that's uh, stable and it's, it's a level position at the top. Um, we talked about triple extension. And then it's also like this, it's a high knee on the swinging leg, uh, which creates this hip lock. And I, I've, I've been asked this question before as well um, in terms of how does, where do you put it into your rehab? And I, and I think the really cool thing about um, this hip lock is yes, you see, um, you see many different variations of it. And I think it's really dependent on how acute, let's say a, a person is coming into you. Um, so let's say, for example, as, as a physiotherapist, we, we see someone come in with, um, like an SIJ dysfunction. Um, we might start off with like an isometric hip lock hold, um, up against the wall, but then that eventually progresses into something where they maintain a hip lock, but they add another movement into it. And then from there, it's another progression of, all right, let's get a hip lock with some counter rotation movement as well. So this is what this is where we might introduce the use of um, bands coming across the side and across body. So if you imagine, let's say, um, let's say we're now at end stage rehab and we need to get someone back to um, playing at game speed, let's say in the context of basketball. Um, if we, I think we both know that there's a lot of cross body things happening um, in the sport of basketball. And 
But I, I think the main thing of when to implement this hip lock and how to implement it and what it looks like is it needs to look as similar to their sport as possible, right? Um, so for example, I'm, I'm most likely not going to give a hip lock to a swimmer because um, there's not there's not much carryover. Yes, there might be an element of it um, coming off of the off of the diving board um, or, or the start block, sorry. Um, but in their sport, there's not much of it. Whereas for basketball, volleyball, um, tennis, um, Olympic weightlifting, there's a lot of this hip block that's happening. Um, and essentially what we're trying to do is create a stable position within the hip or within the pelvis. Um, but it's going to look different at each stage of the rehab. Right. Um, starting off with, let's say, isometrics or even just understanding the what con what all these co-contractions need to look like. Um, and then from there, making it look as similar to what they need to get back to. Mm. So uh, the hip lock, there's like mm -hmm. one side of like, can, can I say it's like full extension and the other side is probably like full flexion? Is it, am I right? Kind of, yeah. Um, let me show. I feel like it's easier to to visualize. Okay. So if I, uh, I don't know how good this is going to be. All right. Let's say, for example, um, if I'm in this position here, yeah. right in that position there, right yeah. now, I know you can't see my foot, but I'm in plantar flexion. I'm in yeah. knee extension, and I'm in hip extension. Yeah. Right. With this, so that hip lock position that we're looking at from the front on is kind of that position there. Yeah. Right. So, um, yes, there's definitely extension of um, of the side that's on the floor, and there's going to be a little bit of uh, oh, there's going to be flexion of the hip that's off the floor. Mm. Right. And it's almost like um, if you imagine like a uh, like like a towel that you're trying to ring up. Yeah, it, it's almost like we're trying to do that um, within the hip to make it a stable position. So, why is it like helpful? In what I mean, why is it like helpful for like sports like uh, sprinting or like mm. football? Those kind who need to like sprint a lot instead of like just yeah. focusing on uh, pure like uh, power output, like just power clean that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I think the, the reason that it works so well with uh, football with track, um, I, we're, we're looking at we're looking at force going through um, all three joints, right? And and even above. If we're thinking of um, let's call it a leak in one of those, let's say you have an athlete that just has really poor ankle stiffness, um, and with their hip lock they can't actually get into plantar flexion of the foot. There's going to be a leak when it comes to actually, let, let's say, going for a full-out sprint, right? Um, or, for example, if, if people don't know how to contract the glute max to get themselves into hip extension, um, it, it's going to go into another part of the body. And I think that's what we see a lot uh, where, when we're assessing people with this hip lock. If someone doesn't have good glute max contraction, um, the knee is usually one of the first things that, that we see start to go a little bit. People start getting like this meniscus pain um, or, or some um, like quad tendinopathy. Um, and that's usually because it's either hamstrings aren't firing um, or glutes are don't, they, they don't know how to co-contract or contract even um, to get this power output. Right. I, I think we always say one of the things we always say, you're, you're better off using the bigger muscles than the smaller muscles. Yes. You have to use them in conjunction, 
But if you have this massive hip extensor in your glute max that's not going, what something else has to take over. And what that is, is, is going to be different for everyone, but we see it. Um, we see it manifest, especially in something like the hip walk. Cool. Love this. Mm. So, mm. uh, besides the hip lock, you also mentioned like muscle slack and co contraction. Yeah. Like, what exactly is like the concept of like muscle slack, and how is it different with uh, stretch shortening cycle? Yeah. Okay. So, muscle slack. Uh, if you imagine, all right. If if you've got this cord here, right? Let Let's say this is your Achilles tendon for example, right? Um, if you imagine the Achilles tendon kind of in that position there, when you go to toe off or when you go to sprint, there's currently slack in that tendon at the moment, right? What we're trying to remove is that muscle slack. So we actually want this so that when you go to push off, your muscle doesn't need to first remove the slack and then go, but instead it's already in this uh, contracted position so that we can then um, produce the amount of force that we need to, right? So if we're thinking about force sharing, um, and, and I, I did a post on this a couple days ago, but um, it's, it's important that we force share. So isometrics, they remove muscle slack, right? So if you think about an isometric contraction of the, the gastroc and the soleus, that's then going to tighten that Achilles tendon, right? And then so from there, the the forcing it helps transmit force onto fascia by stretching it okay and this fascia uh which is like kind of this uh, you can imagine it as like a cling wrap that goes around your muscle there um it shares the forces with the surrounding fascia and muscles as well right so um that that allows it to work as one unit and one thing that we do know is that fascia runs over multiple joints right so if we use the ankle and the knee for example um because the force is being transmitted through the fascia, that induces joint coupling because the fascia is running around, let's say ankle, knee, and now hip, right? So uh, I, I use the example if um, if the knee wants to flex, the, the hip also wants to, and that's because the fascia is running across uh, multiple joints there. So that's the idea of muscle slack. So I, I think simply put, we want as little muscle slack as possible um, so that we can, so so that we don't have those leakages or that force is produced um, and, and not wasted through that pre-tensioning that needs to happen before um, we're, before there's no more slack, if I can say that. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, yeah. So how, if like, let's say if I'm going to, is it like, I'm going to train that or how can I train mm -hmm. this concept? Yeah, good question. Um, so if if you think about, uh, th there are many ways to train it. I, I think that's one thing to consider. And it, if we stay on the topic of the hip lock, right? Um, with the hip lock, when, you're, when your foot's in plantar flexion, that is, um, we've taken out the muscle slack, right? Um, so you can use isometrics to remove muscle slack. And I'm, I know I'm using the example of that, um, of the Achilles tendon, but if we put it in the context of, let's say the hamstring, um, if you have, let's say a hip fold position on the wall. So if you can imagine that you've got one foot on the ground, you've got one foot on the wall and we're hinged over almost like you're doing a single leg RDL, right? In that hinged over position, that's still that's still an isometric contraction because there isn't a lengthening or there isn't a shortening of the muscle. 
Then from there, if we use, let's say, an aquabag or some sort of perturbation to go from left to right, for example, we're still taking out muscle slack, but we're also doing that through the use of co-contractions as well, right? So um, in terms of how to train it, um, you can remove muscle slack by doing isometrics. But I think what's important is that um, it's we're, we're still looking for transferability into sport, right? So whether it's through the use of um, something like a hip lock or, or something um, where we're very conscious of ankle stiffness, right? I, I think one thing that we see a lot with people that come in with Achilles tendinopathy is that they don't have um, they don't have the control to actually stay plantar flexed when they're jumping, right? So if you think about how that transfers over into the context of something like sprinting um, or running, if you've got a heel that's hitting the ground every single time, um, like every single time you run, you can see how something like that might aggravate an Achilles tendon, right? So taking out muscle slack um, and increasing, let's say in the example of an ankle, uh, increasing ankle stiffness is one way to, to train that. So you've got things like pogos where you're on, where you're on two feet um, and, and kind of hopping. And what we're looking for is not that heel to be, um, to be hitting the ground, but you actually want the ankle stiffness on every single one that you do there. And that's one way to, that's one way to train um, removing that muscle slack there. Cool. So, mm. uh, there's also like co-contraction. So, uh, is it kind of the same with like what you just mentioned, like muscle slack? Um, yes. So, uh, yes, but I, I think they are, are they are different uh, topics. So, so co-contractions, I think, or by definition, it is an isometric contraction performed by, by the agonist and antagonist muscle, right? So if you're thinking about the quad and the hamstring on either side, they need to co-contract. Um, and yes, that can be done through um, that can be done through perturbations. Um, it can also be done through time pressure and pre-tensioning as well. So if we're if we're looking at um, the 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 reason the reason behind why we want to work on co-contractions, uh, it works as a way to self-stabilize muscles. Um, it dissipates, so it lessens the force, the, the peak forces, um, and that's by tensioning the fascia, which is what we talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and then there's also this thing of decreasing degrees of freedom, right? So if we think about degrees of freedom um, in something like the hip, by co-contracting, we're decreasing the amount of um, freedom, which sounds like a bad thing, but it, it's a good thing when we're, I think, when we're trying to be stable through the hip. Right. Um, so it reduces that and it resolves the context related variability as well. Right. So um, if, if we're looking at what that looks like within a sport, um, we by having co-contractions, let's say in a movement, um, let's say you're at the top of the key and you're jab stepping. Right. And you might train that, for example, with an aqua bag where you start here and you jab down and you come back up. Right. With your body learning how to co-contract in that movement pattern when it comes to actually doing that within your sport or within a game, your body's been exposed to that variability so that when it comes time to do it at game speed, it, it already recognizes that pattern that you're doing. So it's not so much a responsive thing, but it's a reflexive thing because you've trained it, right? And I think um, well, one thing that we, that we talk about a lot uh, with, with Franz Bosch is that reflexes are much faster than reactions, 
right? So you want to be reflexive to a movement than reactive to a movement because the time is, it's extremely, I mean, it's different. And in, in professional sports, it's a game of milliseconds. It's a game of hundreds of seconds. And if we can train those little things, I mean, that's, that's the difference between you being good and you being great. Right. Um, and yeah, the, the last thing with co-contractions, it overcomes muscle slack by pre-tensioning. And that's, that's kind of what we talked about uh, just before. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you mentioned that uh, it's uh, reflexive over like yeah. reactive, right? Yes. Yes. So that's also why there's like so much different like core training or like special shin training comes along with. Mm. Mm. So can you like, because there's a lot of like movement about like these like core training and some of like the sports specific like shin training, can you like introduce some of it to us? Yeah, of course. Um, So with core training, uh, I forget the name of the researcher, but there there's a research paper out there that says the first thing to contract in any movement is going to be your midline or your core, right? So it's it's this pre-tensioning of your core before you do any sort of movement. If I go reach for my water bottle, the first thing that uh, the first thing that contracts is going to be my core. So I I think core training. Um, I mean, again, th- this is me coming from like this very traditional um like gym slash crossfit training um a lot of what i i did then was very very sagittal right very up and down like trunk flexion trunk trunk extension um obviously some things with twisting but for, for me yeah and i think this has changed a lot in the past two three years um is that the core training has to look like what you do in sport. And I think this ties into the special strength training um, that, that you mentioned too, right? Um, with with basketball, um, with football, with tennis, um, there's, with most sports actually, there's this uh, rotational movement that happens to one, ex- to one extent or another. Um, and, and I think there isn't enough anti-rotational stuff that's being done um, within sports at the moment or within traditional programs at the moment. Like, yes, you can plank. Yes, you can side plank. But if it comes to you having to um, grab a ball from your left hip up to your right hip um, or or vice versa, or you coming from up down to down low, you, you see a lot happening in kind of this X pattern or this rotational pattern around the body. Um, and that's where a lot of um, the core training that I give to especially basketball athletes um, it is surrounding like yes there's a yes there's an element of um, flexion and extension of the of the trunk as well um, but things that I do for core training um, let's say you're holding onto an aqua bag here um, like doing lots of twists going from side to side um, even with bands I'm like you've got your paddock presses and, and I think that's a very um like that's a very basic example of counter rotation movements that you can do um, things of slam balls where you're going from left to right um, it, and just trying to recreate um, a similar amount of force that they might feel within a game in what they're doing for training so that they feel that they feel prepared, if not over-prepared, for what they need to do in-game as well. I hope that answers your question with um, core training. Yeah, but hmm. like uh, you mentioned like the pillow press or like the yeah. metal slam. So yeah. why don't we just – is or is – 
you use like all call back with like prohibition mm. how is it like how is it exactly different with like uh the pill press and yeah the mid boss land yeah yeah great question um i i think all like the aqua bag it's it's one tool right and, and i think uh i i think sometimes and i'm guilty of this as well i think sometimes it's it's the easiest thing to go to because it's a piece of equipment that creates this uh, variability that creates this instability and I, I guess the difference between this med ball slam and the palaf press versus the aqua bag. The aqua bag is um, it's it's an uncontrollable variable, and I think that's what we're trying to train. I think especially in sport, we're trying to we're trying to essentially give them as many different variables as possible within the limits of their learning um, to then get them to self organize. And and I think that's the one of the main parts of the aqua bag is that that um, that sort of instability is creating stability within uh, within the organism or within the athlete there right so um yes there's a there's a place for there's a place for the med ball slams and sometimes it comes down to availability as well and i think this is going to be different from person to person if someone doesn't have access to let's say an aqua bag the paloff press let's say with a um with a plate in between to add that sort of perturbation um is something that we can use for it um again it's lots of different factors and i think it's also dependent on um athlete to athlete like i i won't use an aqua bag with one basketball athlete compared to an, another if there's a, even if it's something as simple as i i don't want to use the aqua bag when i'm in a commercial gym right and and i completely understand that it looks very strange if you go into let's say world gym you take an aqua bag with you and you're doing all these things like there's there is that element too so I think there are lots of things to consider when prescribing exercise, and you would know that as a performance um, coach as well, that not one exercise is going to work for every single person there. And it's exactly the same thing with core training. Um, and, and I think the main thing that, that I'm I'm looking at as, as a physio is, what where can I get the most buy-in from this athlete? Do they see how this is going to transfer over into their sport? If I can tick a couple of those boxes, then I'm probably going to go with that exercise. And it might look different for every single person. Great, great. So that mm. also works with, like, uh, the sports-specific, like, strength training, right? I saw mm. there's going to be a lot of, like, uh, like single-leg, single-leg, mm. like, clean, that kind of stuff. Or, like, yeah, uh, yeah. like some sort of movement, like... Um, lunges but it car it kind of it kind of implement the hip lock with mm. the movement or some sort of like um co-contraction am i right yeah so with the um let, let's use a single leg clean uh for example um i mean that that's definitely something that implements a hip lock but with with more velocity right and um there, there is a transfer over from that into um, into any sort of sport where there's this um, where there's this push off that's happening. Um, so with with track and field, with running, with basketball, um, with any sort of jumping sport, there is a transfer over for that. I I personally think, um, and I know I might get a bit of um, backlash for this. I I think sports are going to one day, hopefully sooner than later. Um, get away from this very traditional strength training approach. Um, I, I don't think we're far off from like top level teams going away from your, 
um, your traditional lifts and seeing more of this in there. And, and it's, I mean, the, the concept has been around for ages, right? But if, if I can, if I can liken it to the, um, you know, when a player gets, uh, player gets injured, uh, we, we know this principle of the rice principle, rest, ice, compress, elevate, right? And that is embedded into sport. Um, and I, I don't see it changing. I hope it does. But the same guy that came up with this rice principle came out to say, sorry, my principle is actually flawed, right? And, but it's so embedded into professional sports that it's, I, I don't think we're going to see a change. But with that said, I, I think with, um, I mean, you're seeing NBA teams do it already. You're seeing a lot of top uh, top teams using like aqua bags, using all this like perturbation stuff. Um, and and I don't think I don't think we're far away from from yeah traditional lifts slowly phasing out and more sports specific training coming in. Um, like y- yes, there are elements. Let's say in American football, for example, where something like a bench press, like yes, there's value to it. Like they, like linemen, they need upper body strength and they need they need that pushing power. So I, I can see something like that. But if you like, what? Why would a NBA player? Why would a basketball player need to have a extremely big bench? Right? There's I, I don't think there's carryover into it. And I think that's where this special strength training or sports specific training is going to start looking more like what they actually need to do rather than it being um, what you and I are probably used to. Yeah. So, uh, so like using those like aquapack or like unstable mm. surface or like mm. perturbation, that mm. is that like uh, the reason why we use that is is it because like the thing you mentioned like let your body to like re re learn this and to be able to like use it in like different situation. I would say so. I would say so. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to, we're trying to change, I, I think, especially with uh, the, let's use the example of the unstable surface. Uh, we're, we're trying to change the environment of that, right? So um, there, Bosch talks about this, um, um, the variabilities that we can change. Um, there's the environment, there's a task, and there's an organism, right? And and if we're thinking about the task uh, that needs to be changed um, or the organism, that being us or the environment, when we're talking about unstable surfaces, we're changing the environment of that, right? Um, I, I I think for me and, and unstable surfaces for basketball specifically, I think, I think we need to be careful though of over changing things too. Um, I like the use of unstable surfaces in the context of like ankles and stability of ankles. But when it comes to, uh, when it comes to, let's say lateral movement, you're not really going to have situations in game where the state, where where the surface is unstable. Right. And, And so what we're trying to, what we're trying to work with these unstable surfaces is giving the body all these different variables and getting it to figure itself out. I think simply put, um, but with that said, variability, um, they, there are different levels to it, too. I think there is such a thing as too many variables, and that's dependent on the athlete as well. But we also all we obviously don't want to have no variables in our training because then there's no room to learn. And I think that's where I, I think that's what it comes down to. How, how many variables can I give to my athlete for them to be able to learn um, 
learn these different patterns that they're they haven't been exposed to quite yet yeah great last mm -hmm. question before they go okay yeah of course so uh there's also some movement i saw on the french ball system and it's combined mm -hmm. the hip block with like different different like uh different how do i say this like different direction like most like the multi-dimensional yes. movement we used to like oh yeah yeah we used to train our athlete so yeah uh, yeah yeah is it is it kind of the same concept with like linear but it just like different direction and yeah yeah and how should we like and is it can i like like uh, try to like replace it with the hmm. old traditional movement we use Mm -hmm. So I with the um I, I think I know which movement you're referring to. It's it's kind of like this um like starting with one leg up, placing it on the ground, and then hip walking yeah. a, a different direction. So there's a couple elements to that. There's the element of swing leg retraction, which is how well you can use your hamstring to actually bring your foot underneath you to make contact, right? So if we use that exercise, for example, in the context of something like a Euro step, it's important that a athlete or like the, that a basketball athlete knows how to get into that hip lock position as soon as that foot hits the ground, right? Um, if we're trying to if we're trying to create uh, a massive amount of force going through the foot into something like a euro step where you have to go from one direction to the other, an athlete's ability or inability to get into that hip lock position going laterally is going to be the difference between them. Um, let's say being able to finish at the rim or having to adjust while still um, in the air, right? Um, and, and what I mean by that, if you can get more power output, that brings you closer to the rim. If there's less power output, we might need to be finishing under the basket instead. So yeah, uh, very, very similar um, in terms of concept of being able to use a hip walk, but instead of it being, let's say in a, like a linear pattern, you have something that's a little bit more, um, yeah, like, multi-directional if i can call it that now your question about how can uh, what can i do to replace it with a um with like the traditional strength movements um it's a great question i i think the the closest thing and i've done this before in a commercial gym is um i haven't been able to replace the the multi-directional ones in the gym setting but with the hip walk one thing that I like to use sometimes is um is a Smith machine and just having the the bar on my back and then from there kind of starting in this hinged over position and then exploding up right but I, but I think with that because there's this external force on our back that's already causing us to pre tension right because any sort of uh, any sort of force on me is going to get me bracing and I think the one thing with the Smith machine or or, or trying to do the hip lock with the Smith machine is that hardly ever in sport are you going to have this um, external force pushing down on you before you're trying to do a hip walk right um, I, I think the only example i could think of is maybe someone going up for a layup and someone actually holding them down and them having to hip walk up but outside of that um, i i think that external load almost gives us false pretensioning of the body right and, and so if you can if you can be as open chain with your movements and as open with your movements as possible i think that gives the athlete the best chance possible to uh, have that transfer over into their sport
Yeah. Great. Mm. Love that. Love mm. that. Yeah. So yeah. That's kind of like all the questions I have for today. If there's yeah, like good. coaches or therapists are interested in what we are talking about today, where mm. can they reach out to you and how can they find the post I saw on your Instagram? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, on on Instagram, uh, it's it's Daniel Physio. Uh, again, I'm I'm based in Sydney. Um, so I, I know most of your audience is probably in the states or, or around the world. So I know that's a bit of a trek, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm more than happy to chat um, to people. I love talking about this stuff, and and I'm still learning. I, I'm I'm no expert in all the Franz Bosch stuff. It's there's so much to unpack uh, in it, but um, yeah, it my my main mode of communication is is usually instagram or or email um so that's just daniel physio and yeah more than happy to chat with people about it cool great 